Section 11 of Astounding Stories 15, March 1931. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Astounding Stories 15, March 1931, by Various. Beyond the Vanishing Point, by Ray Cummings. Chapter 8 From a Drop of Water. I lay concealed, and Bab stood at the lattice of our cage room. I was aware that Poulter had entered some vast apartment of this giant palace. A brighter light was outside. I heard voices, Poulter's and another man's. I could see the distant monster shape of one. He was at first so far away that all his outline was visible. A seated man in a huge white room. I thought there were great shelves with enormous bottles. The spread of tabletops passed under our cage as Poulter walked by them. They held a litter of apparatus, and there was the smell of chemicals in the air. It seemed that this was a laboratory. The man stood up to greet Poulter. I had a glimpse of his head and shoulders level with us. He wore a white linen coat, open, soft collar, and a black tie. He seemed an old man, queerly old, with snow-white hair. I had an instant of whirling, confused impressions. Something was familiar about his face. It was seamed and wrinkled with lines of age and care. There were gentle blue eyes. Then all I could see was the vast spread of his white shirt and coat, a black splotch of his tie outside our bars as Poulter faced him. Babs gave a low cry. Why, why, dear God! And then I knew and Poulter's words were not needed, though I heard their rumble. "'I am back again, Kent. Are you still rebellious? You have still determined to compound no more of our drugs? You would rather I killed you? Then see what I have here. This little cage, someone—' It was Dr. Kent, a prisoner here all these years. Babs turned her white face toward me. "'George, it's father. He's alive. Here.' "'Quiet, Babs.' Don't let them know I'm here, remember?" The old man recognized her. "'Babs!' It was an agonized cry. The blur of him was gone as he sank down into his chair. Poulter continued standing. I could envisage his sardonic grin. Babs was calling, "'Father, dear! Father!' From over us came Poulter's rumble. "'She is glad to see you, Kent. I have her here, safe.' You always knew I would never be satisfied until I had my little Babs. Well, now I have her. Can you hear me?" A sudden desperate calmness fell on Babs. She called evenly. "'Yes, I hear you. Father, do not anger him. Do not rebel. Do what he commands. Dr. Poulter, will you let me be with my father? After all these years, let me be with him, just for a little while. In his size, normal.' Ha! My Babs is scheming! No, I want to talk to him after so long, these years when I thought he was dead. Scheming! You think, my little Babs, that he has the drugs? I am not so much a fool. He makes them. He can do that, and the last secret reactions only he can perform. He is stubborn. Never would he tell me that one reaction. But he makes no drugs complete, only when I am here. No, Dr. Poulter, I want only to be with him." 
The old man's broken voice floated up to us. "'You will not harm her, Poulter?' "'No, fear nothing. But you no longer rebel?' "'I will do what you tell me.' The tones carried hopeless resignation, years of being beaten down, rebelling, but now this last blow vanquished him. Then he spoke again, with a sudden strange fire. Even for the life of my daughter, I will not make your drugs, Poulter, if you mean to harm our earth. The golden cage room swooped as Poulter sat down. Ha! Now we bargain. What do you care what I do to your world? You never will see it again. I can lie to you. My plans. I do care. Well, I will tell you, Kent. I am good-natured now. Why should I not be, with my dear little Babs? I tell you. I have done with the earth world. It is so much nicer here. My friends, they have a good time always. We like this little atom realm. I am going out once more. I must hide the little piece of golden quartz so no harm will come to it. Poulter was evidently in a high good humor. His voice fell to an intimate tone of comradeship, but still I could not mistake the irony of it. You listen to me, Kent. There was a time, years ago, when we were good friends. You liked your young assistant, the hunchback Poulter. Is it not so? Then why should we quarrel now? I am giving up the earth world. I wanted of it only the little Babs. You look at me so strange. You do not speak. There is nothing to say, retorted Dr. Kent wearily. Then you listen. I have much gold above in Quebec. You know that. So very simple to take it out of our atom, grow large with it, to what we call up there the size of a hundred feet. I have a place, a room, secluded from prying eyes under a dome roof. I become very tall, holding a piece of gold. It is large when I am hundred feet tall. So I have collected much gold. They think I own a mine. I have a smelter, and my gold quartz I make into ingots, refined to the standard purity. So simple, and I am a rich man. But gold does not bring happiness, my friend Kent. He chuckled ironically at his use of the platitude. There is more in life than the ownership of gold. You ask my plans. I have Babs now. I am giving up our earth world. The mysterious man they know as Frank Rascor will vanish. I will hide our little fragment of quartz. No one up there will even try to find it. Then I come down here, with Babs, and we'll have so nice a little government and rule this world. No more of the drugs then will be needed, Kent. When you die, let the secret die with you." Again Poulter's voice turned ingratiating, even more so than before. "'We will be friends, Kent. Our little Babs will love me. Why should she not?' "'You will tell her, advise her, and we will all three be very happy.' Dr. Kent said abruptly, "'Then leave her with me now. That was her request a moment ago. If you expect to treat her kindly, then why not?' "'I do, I do. But not now. I cannot spare her now. I am very busy, but I must take her with me.' Babs had been silent, clinging to the bars of our cage. She called, "'Why? I ask you to put this cage down.' "'Not now, little bird.' and let me be with my father. It struck a pang through me. Babs was scheming, but not the way Poulter thought. She wanted the cage put on the floor, herself out, and a chance for me to escape. 
I had not yet told her of my miserable stupidity in losing the vial. Poulter was repeating, No, little bird, presently, not now. I may take you out with me, my last trip out. I want to talk with you in a normal size when I have time. A room swooped as he stood up. You think over what I have said, Kent. You get ready now to make the fresh drugs I will need to bring down all my men from the outer world. They will all be glad to come, or if not, well, we can easily kill those who refuse. You make the drugs. I need plenty. Will you?" Yes. That is good. I come back soon and give you the catalyst for that last reaction. Will you be ready? Yes. The blur outside our bar swung with a dizzying whirl as Poulter turned and left the room, locking its door after him with a reverberating clank. Left alone in his laboratory, Dr. Kent began his preparations for making a fresh supply of the drugs. This room, with two smaller ones adjoining, was at once his workshop and his prison. He stood at its shelves, selecting the basic chemicals. He could not complete the final compounds. The catalyst which was necessary to the final reaction would be brought to him by Poulter. How long he worked there with his thoughts in a whirl at seeing Babs, he did not know. His movements were automatic. He had done all this so many times before. His mind was confused, and he was trembling from head to foot, an old, queerly, unnaturally old man now, unnerved. His shaking fingers could hardly hold the test-tubes. His thoughts were flying. Babs was here, come down from the world above. It was disaster, the thing he had feared all these years. He suddenly heard a voice. Father! And again, Father! A tiny voice down by his shoe-tops. Two small figures were there on the floor beside him. They were both panting, winded by running. They were enlarging. They had come from a smaller size. It was Alan and Glora, who had followed Poulter from the boat, diminished again, and came running through the tiny crack under the metal doorway of the laboratory. They grew to a foot in size, down by Dr. Kent's legs. He was too unnerved. He sat in a chair while Alan swiftly told him what had happened. Babs was in the golden cage. Dr. Kent knew that. But none of them knew what had happened to me. We must make you small, father. We have the drugs here with us. Yes, yes, Alan. How much have you? Show me. Oh, my boy, that you are here, and Babs. Don't you worry. We'll get away from him. Glora and Alan had almost reached Dr. Kent's size before their excited fingers could get out the vials. They took some of the diminishing drug to check their growth. Alan handed his father a black vial. "'Yes, lad. No, wait, father. That's the wrong drug. This other—' Dr. Kent had opened the vial. His trembling hand spilled some of the pellets, but none of them noticed it. "'Father, dear, this one—' Alan held an opalescent vial. "'This one—' Glora said abruptly, "'Listen, is that someone coming?' They thought they heard approaching footsteps. A moment passed, but no one came into the room. "'Hurry,' urged Glora. "'It is nothing. We wait too long.' "'My boy, Alan, dear, after all these years—' They were about to take the diminishing drug. From across the room there came a very queer sound, a scuttling, scratching, and the drone of wings. "'Father, good God, look!' Over by the wall a giant fly was running across the floor, 
it was growing larger. At Dr. Kent's feet the pellets he had dropped were crushed by his footsteps and strewn on the floor. A fly had eaten of the Swedish powder. The enlarging drug was loose. A few drops of water lay mingled with the drug on the floor, and from the water nameless hideous things were rising. CHAPTER Nine, THE DOOMED REALM To Alan, the first few moments that followed the escape of the drug were the most horrible of his life. The discovery struck old Dr. Kent, Glora, and Alan into a numb, blank confusion. They stood transfixed, staring with cold terror. The fly was scurrying along the floor close against the wall. Already it was as large as Alan's hand. It ran into the corner, hit the wall in its confused alarm, and turned back. Its wings were droning with an audible hum. It reared itself on its hairy legs, lifted, and sailed across the room. As though drawn by a magnet, Alan turned to watch it. It landed on the wall. Alan was aware of Dr. Kent's rushing with trembling steps to a shelf where bottles stood. Glora was stricken into immobility, the blood draining from her face. The fly flew again. It passed directly over Alan. Its body, with a membrane sack of eggs, was now as large as his head. Its widespread transparent wings were beating with a reverberating drone. Alan flung a bottle which was on the table beside him. It missed, crashed against the ceiling, came down with splintering glass and spilling liquid. Fumes spread chokingly over the room. The fly landed again on the floor, larger now, expanding with a horrible rapid growth. Glora flung something, a little wooden rack with a few empty test-tubes in it. The rack struck the monstrous fly, but did not hurt it. The fly stood with hairy legs braced under its bulging body. Its multiple-lensed eyes were staring at the humans. And with its size must have come a sense of power, for it seemed to Alan that the monstrous insect had an abnormal alertness as it stood measuring its adversaries, gathering itself to attack them. Only a few seconds had passed. Confused thoughts swept Alan. This fly with its growth would soon fill this room, burst it, burst upward through a wrecked palace, soar out and by the power of its size alone devastate this world. He heard himself shouting, "'Father, get back! It's too large! I've got to kill it!' Launch himself upon it, wrestle with it in a hand-to-hand combat? Alan edged round the center table. He was bathed in cold sweat. This thing was so horrible, it was too large, half the length of his own body now. In a moment it might be twice that. He was aware of Glora pulling at him, and his father rushing past him with a bottle of liquid and shouting, "'Helen, run! You and this girl, get out of here! The other room!' Then Alan saw the things upon the floor. His foot crushed one with a slippery squash. Nameless, hideous, noisome things grown monstrous, risen from their lurking invisibility in the drops of water. Sodden, gray-black, and green-slimed monsters of the deep, palpitating masses of pulp. One lay rocking, already as large as a football, with streamers of ooze hanging upon it, and a black ink fluid squirting. Others were rods of red jelly pulp, already as large as lead pencils, quivering, twitching. Germs of disease, these ghastly things enlarging from the invisibility of a drop of water. The fly landed with a thud on the center table. The fumes of the shattered bottle of chemicals were choking Alan. 
he flung himself toward the monster fly, but Glora held him. No, escape! The other room! Dr. Kent was stamping the things upon the floor, pouring acids upon them. Some eluded him. The air in the room was unbreathable. They reached the bedroom. The laboratory was a hideous chaos. They were aware of its outer door opening, disclosing the figure of Poulter, who undoubtedly had been attracted by the noise. He shouted a startled oath. Alan heard it above the beating wings of the monster fly. Things lurched at the open door. Poulter banged it upon them and rushed away, shouting the alarm through the palace. Dr. Kent was stammering, "'Not the enlarging drug! Glora, child, the other! Hurry!' Alan helped Glora with the opalescent vial. Things were lurching toward this room from the laboratory. Alan, with averted face, choked by the incoming fumes, slammed the door upon the gruesome turmoil. They took the diminishing drug. The bedroom expanded. The hideous sounds from the laboratory and the whole palace now ringing with a wild alarm, then faded into blessed remoteness of distance above them. "'I think it is this way, Alan. Off there. A doorway from my bedroom. Poulter always kept it locked, but it leads into a corridor. We must get out of here. A crack under the door. Is that it, off there?' Dr. Kent pointed into the gloomy blur of distance. We are horribly small. It's so far to run, and I've lost my sense of direction." The drug had ceased its action. The wooden floor of the room had expanded to a spread of cellular surface, ridged with broken, tube-like tunnels, pits and jagged cave-mouths. A knot-hole yawned like a crater a hundred feet away. "'We are too small,' Glora protested hurriedly. "'The door is where you say, Dr. Kent, but miles away.' With the other drug the room contracted. The floor surface shrank and smoothed a little. The door was distinguishable, a square panel several hundred feet in width and towering into the upper haze. The black line of the crack was visible along its bottom. They ran to it. The top of the crack was ten feet above their heads. They ran under, across the wide intervening darkness, toward a glow of light. Then they came from under the door into a corridor and shrank against a cliff-wall, as with a rush of wind and pounding tread, the blurred shapes of a man's huge feet and legs rushed past. The upper air was filled with rumbling shouts. "'We must chance it!' exclaimed Dr. Kent. "'Too dangerous! So small! Larger! And if they see us, fight our way out!' In the turmoil of the doomed palace no one noticed them. They cast aside all restraint. It was too dangerous to wait. The excessive dose they took of the drug made the corridor shrink with dizzying speed. They rushed along its length. Alan hurled a little man aside who was in their path. Already they were larger than the Poulter people. They squeezed out of a shrinking doorway. The dwindling island was a turmoil. Little figures were plunging from the palace. At the edge of the water Alan, Glora, and Dr. Kent stood for an instant looking behind them. The palace was rocking. Its roof heaved upward, then smashed and fell aside with the clatter of tumbling masonry. The monstrous fly, its hideous face mashed and oozing, reared itself up, and with broken, torn wings tried to soar away. But it could not. It slipped back. The drone and buzz of its fright sounded over the chaos of noise. Other things came lurching and twitching upward, slithering out. The expanding body of the fly was pushing the palace walls outward. In a moment they collapsed 
and it emerged. To Ellen and his companions the scene was all shrinking into a miniature chaos of horror at their shoe-tops. A diminuendo of screams mingled down there. Overhead were the stars, shining peacefully remote. Nearby lay a rapidly narrowing channel of shining water. A tiny city was across it. Lights were moving. The panic had spread from the island to Orina. Beyond the tiny city a range of mountains showed, a cliff gleaming in the starlight, tunnel mouths. Suddenly, against the stars off there, Alan saw the enlarging figure of Poulter, his hunched shape unmistakable. He was facing the other way. He lunged and scrambled into a yawning black hole in the mountains. Poulter was escaping. None of these people except himself had the drugs. He was escaping with the golden cage, out of this doomed atomic world to our earth above. Glora murmured, There is our way out, your way, and that is Poulter going. I think he did not see us. So much is growing gigantic here. She clung to Ellen. Dear one, Dr. Kent muttered, We will wait a moment, wade across or leap over and follow him out. Babs with him. Dear God, I hope so. This doomed realm. Alan held Glora close, and suddenly he was laughing, a madness, half hysteria. Why, this, all this! Why, look, Glora, it's funny! This little world all excited, and Ant Hill outraged! Look, there's our giant sailboat! Down near their feet, the inch long sailboat stood at its dock. Tiny human figures were rushing for it, others, floundering in the water, were trying to climb upon it. Dr. Kent had stepped from the shore a foot or two, and tiny, lashing white rollers rocked the boat, almost engulfing it. Alan's laugh rang out. God, it's funny, isn't it? All those little creatures, so excited! Steady, lad! Dr. Kent touched him. Don't let yourself laugh. A moment now, then we'll wade across. Poulter won't have much start on us. We mustn't get too close to him in size, but try and attack him unawares. We've got to get Babs away from him." The narrowing passage rose hardly to their knees. They stepped ashore, well to one side of the toy city. Their growth had almost stopped. But suddenly Alan realized that Glora was diminishing. She had taken the other drug. "'Glora! I must go back, Alan. This is my world doomed, perhaps, but I cannot forsake it now. I must give the enlarging drug to my father, and others who can rise and fight these monsters." "'Glora!' Dr. Kent said hurriedly. "'She's right, Ellen. There is a chance they can save their city. For her to leave them would be dastardly.' She cried, "'You go on up, Ellen. You have enough of the drugs. Leave me, dear one. I am going back.' "'No!' he protested. You must not! Or if you do, I'll come with you!" She clung to him. He felt her body diminishing within his encircling arms. His love for her swept him. This girl, who had cajoled Poulter or tricked him, stolen several of the little vials from him heaven knows how, and followed him up to the other world. This girl, whom Alan now knew he loved, was leaving him. Forever? As he stood there, with the miniature landscape at his feet in the wan starlight, the panic-stricken tiny city, the island with its monsters rising to overwhelm this microscopic world, 
it seemed to Alan that if he let her go it was the end for him of all life's promised happiness. "'Alan, lad, come!' his father was pulling at him. So horrible a choice. Alan thought that I was back on that island, but Babs, a prisoner in the golden cage, was with Poulter, plunging upward in size, and his father was beside him pleading. "'Alan, come! I can't get out alone, nor save Babs! And the maddened Poulter, with the power of this drug, can conquer and enslave our earth as he has enslaved Arena, just one little city of one tiny golden atom. Believe me, lad, your duties lie above." Glora's head was now down at Alan's waist. He stooped and kissed her white forehead. His fingers, just for an instant, smoothed her glossy hair. "'Good-bye, Glora. Dear one, good-bye.' She plunged away, and her tread as she dwindled mashed the forest behind the city. Alan and his father ran for the cliff. They were too large to squeeze into the little hole, but in a moment they made themselves smaller. They climbed as they dwindled, checked the drug action, and rushed into the tunnel mouth. Alan stopped just for an instant to gaze out over the starlit scene. It was almost the same viewpoint from which he had had his first sight of Glora's world only an hour or two before. The distant island beyond the city showed plainly with the shining water around it. The vegetation there was growing, and there were dark, horribly formless blobs lurching outward and rising with monstrous bulk against the background of the stars. "'Alan! Come, lad!' With a prayer for Glora trembling on his lips, Alan plunged into the dim phosphorescent gloom of the tunnel. End of chapter 9 End of sector 11